Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like, and have a little bit of fun. So welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Walls. We have Dan Coach Berlin with us this evening and two of our features, our weekly features, and experts. Axel Lilmanis is an expert in entertainment and esports, and Chelsea Vernhout, who is an expert in our social media area. So, welcome, Donovan Bennett, DJ Bennett uh, from, uh, from Sportsnet, a host, a writer, a father, a friend, you, you're um, an advocate as well. So, we're really excited to have you on the show tonight. Thank you for joining us. We've got a lot of, uh, we actually narrowed the topics so that you know, we narrowed the topics down. Prof Joe, oh, one more thing. Prof Joe could not be here this evening, unfortunately. So uh, we have Alex Gallagher, who is a past RTA student who's here with us this evening. Um, and we're just learning some of the things that he's doing post-graduation, one being a journalist for F1. So Alex, welcome as well. Donovan, uh, you you are very outspoken, and we love this. We love what you are saying, and that you are continuing to have the conversation, whether it is about equal pay for women and gender equity, Black Lives Matter. Uh, your most recent, in terms of uh, the call out to white athletes, start to come forward to use their platforms. And the one thing that comes to mind, because we've we've been doing this show since April. And we've talked about these topics over and over and over again. And one thing that we're doing at the university and specifically in my lab is we're trying to look at uh, equity, diversity and inclusion in sport in particular, but how do we actually know the efforts, efforts of what we're calling, and you've, you've said it, quoted, a movement, not a moment. How do we know, how do you measure change? And that's going to be the big question, because if we don't measure change and we're not making actual change, then we're going to see history continue to repeat itself. So, DJ, how do you measure change? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. And obviously, like change is the goal, right? So if, if you have a goal that you're striving towards, then you want to have um, some clear definitions of it. are you moving towards it or, or not? How successful in that endeavor are you? I mean, I, I think one for me, um, if, if I'm just doing appraisal uh, of, of if we're getting some traction and some change, uh, I'm here talking to you, right? Like we're having these conversations in schools, in households and families, in organizations, on TV. Um, and, and so I think that is a, a big change. And, and the other thing is often we'd have these conversations, but everyone who had them looked like me. And as I look uh, to this beautiful Zoom, most people don't look like me because you're all better looking, but, but also, you know, there's some diversity in who wants to have the conversation now as well. It's not just a conversation amongst one community with themselves. And I think that is a, a big difference. I mean, if you, if you just took a snapshot and looked at the protests for Trayvon Martin or Freddie Gray or Eric Garner or Tamir Rice, just took a, just took a still image. Then you look at the protest for Jacob Blake and, uh, and um, it, it, the Ahmaud Arbery and people who have lost their lives recently, George Floyd. The, the 
the, the people look different, right? They, they, they do look like North America, like Canada, like the United States, not just like the people who are suffering uh, due to anti-Black racism. So I think that is a positive step. I, 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 we should remember, right? Because a lot of people are trying to do a lot of things. And so how do we decide, like, well, is that token or is that tangible? Are you just doing something for a participation ribbon because you think you should? Or you're doing something that's going to have some real impact and change? And so that's, to me, through a sports lens is how I've looked at these issues. Like, it's great for the National Hockey League, which has done a lot of great work in this space, um, to put on, you know, video screens and racism. Well, that's great. That's a lofty goal. And I don't know if we're ever going to get there. But and racism where? In hockey, in the National Hockey League, in North America, in the justice system, in terms of police brutality. Like you have to be very specific on what you're talking about. And, and more importantly, then well, how do you endeavor to do that? And so just saying end racism, just handing out t-shirts with slogans, but not really being prescriptive on what you mean and how you achieve that goal is performative. And actually it just takes up space and doesn't really help the problem. So, so, so I think that's the justification. What are you doing and, and, and how is, is that gonna help? But, but I am uh, energized and uplifted by the fact that no matter if it's token or tangible, um, performative or purposeful, I, I see a lot of people trying to help who don't look like me, and that's a start. So, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. We keep hearing performative. This is, you know, it's not a new concept, but it's something that is being termed right now. And this is, and I heard you say this on, on a, a talk show where you said, it's, you know, it's not just about being an ally, it's also about being a partner, that people are going to be in this with you for the long haul and feel some of the inequities and the difficult conversations, the difficult feelings. So um, this, I'm curious about this performative because, I, and I, there, I've seen a lot of people criticize the performative and, and some, in some cases, some of the things that we are seeing in research in particular, is that sometimes it takes those performative steps to then be able to get to what is actual and real and authentic. Um, and, and it goes through that process of change. It goes through from like making first an awareness, then secondary being able to, you know, have some workshops, have some education, try to understand why it's offensive and, and some of the stuff that we've read about people saying all lives matter versus black lives matter. Um, and the performative then eventually with the right type of programming and the right type of movement and the right type of consistency and moving it forward on platforms are able to get out of that performative stage to an authentic stage. So um, on that comment then about tokenism and performative, do you see that as um, something to criticize or do you see that as something that is positive? that eventually and hopefully, and, and I don't know how long people stay in that stage. That's, you know, they could stay, if they stay in that stage for a very long time, that's, a, that's going to be an issue. But I don't necessarily, what the research is showing is that at least for the short term, having um, a level of, of some sort of involvement or discussion is positive. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I think both can be true, right? Like, so the NBA, for example, let's use them as an example. They put Black Lives Matter on the court, right? So you can't watch an NBA game without seeing the words Black Lives Matter. Like, was that a great cost to anybody? No, not really. 
Um, but but is there a a, a could people say that's performative because what does that do? I mean, they could, but what it certainly does do is it allows people when they're watching the game, which is being watched by millions, to have that conversation. A young child, hey, why is that on the court? What does that mean? Um, and, and and that starts a dialogue. And if for for nothing else, it just lets everybody know, good, bad, or indifferent, what side of history the NBA would like to be on and whose side in, in this fight, if you will, they are on. They, they are making a declarative statement. And I think that has value. But, but there are some other things that you wonder, okay, well, where's the value and who asked for this, right? So the NFL, for example, they're playing the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Love it. Sounds great. Heard it in church pews all the time as a kid. Who, like, who asked for this? Like, I mean, I suppose it's nice, but it's just another talking point in terms of who is standing for it, who is kneeling for it. That alone, is, there's talk that might only be for week one, we're playing it once in a bunch of empty stadiums. What does that achieve? In real estate, the, the, the best example of this is in this racial uh, reckoning where we're all thinking about our language and the coded meanings towards it. Um, in, in real estate, there's a movement to remove the term master bedroom from, uh, you know, um, the way we're talking about houses and, and our, our, our plans in terms of, you know, what a house might, might look like. And again, I thought was, was who asked for this, I think would be more uh, a pertinent conversation is to talk about housing discrimination and redlining, like just changing a real estate brochure and it, it doesn't, it's going from master bedroom to main bedroom now, I'm not sure if that really helps um, anyone further the conversation. So I think there's certainly, um, you know, a, a fine line between what is just a important first step to give the, the topic some visibility and awareness and to foster further conversations and what is just easy and, and can be lazy, but without more work really holds no value. So you also, we're going to be talking about the uh, equal pay in the Brazilian national team in a moment, which is great news. Uh, sl still slow to the start in soccer. Uh, lots is happening in the tennis space, but just, just in general in sport, because I've, you've also spoken about gender equity as as being um, something that is, you know, well, it's an intersection in terms of sport and what you talk about in terms of your advocation. And with that, I, I also think of this, this quote is that, first of all, women want to be defined competent by their male counterparts. And this is by Clarington and Knopper, so some researchers in 2007. And there was a, a gender uh, institute in, at Stanford University by Shelley Corral, who talks about for equal pay, for women to be able to get equal pay in organizations, and whether that's a sport organization or, you know, corporate, uh, corporate America or corporate Canada, that, that men need to vouch competence for women's um, leadership and, and their achievements. And so when you, when you say about the master bedroom or the maid bedroom and who asked for that or end racism, uh, that the NHL has put out and who, who asked for that? Is that something that you think you should be doing or did somebody actually ask for that? Um, and so, but something like, you know what, a step forward by demonstrating that equal pay matters is something that in, in this case, we don't need 
and I speak as a female, we don't need men to vouch for us to show that you're competent because you're winning gold medals or you're, you're winning FIFA or whatever, whatever sport you want to say. Um, so in that case, what do you think about having uh, an equal pay that, you know, in terms of performative measures you speak about, where, where is that on the equal pay scale um, with organizations? Perhaps, and maybe this is a bit too of a complex question, but I know you're, you're uh, it, just in general. So it's not that it's a complex question for anybody on this Zoom. It's just that it, overall, how, how do we comprehend this intersectionality with gender equity, diversity equity, just inclusion in general, and making sure that from an equal pay, it's pretty obvious. You either pay women the same or you don't. Whereas, let's say if we were to say, like, let's get gender equity in sport in just in a general statement, how do we how we measure that is more difficult. So in terms of women and the gender equity pay, where do you see this going? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it's, it's to me, equal pay is like an open and shut case. Like we're gonna look back at this time, you know, however long from now. I hope it's not that long from now, but 25 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, and we're gonna be like, wait, what happened? Like we we just all decided that female athletes are going to get less sponsorship dollars, uh, less ad revenue, less marketing. So it's really not even fair that we're judging them on things like ratings because we, we don't market the product, uh, less, less resources, but yet th they're going to endeavor in the same ways to be great at a high level. And in fact, their games are often just as if not more exciting. Like that was a thing that actually happened. Um, and we, we really don't do it in any other space. Imagine like, uh, female musician walking into a, a, a recording um, studio. And yeah, all the execs said, yeah, you know what? You sound great, Adele, but we're gonna pay you like 75 cents on the dollar. Like that would, that would just never happen. So for me, there are like some very clear things where you know, we, we try to wrap the, the equal pay, whether it's in sports or, or in, in corporate uh, North America, underneath things of oh well you know we're paying you what you're worth relative to what the ratings are what how we can market the product there's some very clear and basic things that are, that are not fair or equitable that should be how can we ask female athletes to travel differently than male athletes like this is open and shut case you're going from one place to the other you're representing your country or or in the case of WNBA players a team or a city why would we assume that the men need to travel one way to achieve a high level greatness, but the women wouldn't? Why would we put less resources in terms of therapists and doctors and support staff for a women's team than a male team? Like, like you're, you're just showing your hand in terms of how you value the product and, and really ultimately how you value women. And so the broader conversation for us as a society is this is, half and, and often more than 50% of our population, are we going to actively treat them as second-class citizens openly, not even really hiding it, just, just the bottom line fact that we should honor someone for their ingenuity, for their work ethic, for their talent, but we're going to make you work at a discount just because of your chromosomes? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And, 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 and it's really unacceptable. But, but more often, even if you... you you don't see it that way from, from a, a clear cut case the way I do. Well, let's look at all of the intangibles that come, that we know that come with our society, that makes our society overall better if we invest in female sports. 
we, we know in terms of um, what it does for self-esteem of, of girls in their adolescence, what it, what it does for their future career, both in education and eventually uh, in the workforce. We know that representation really, really matters. And especially when we're at a time when, when suicide rates specifically for adolescents and specifically for females um, is at a shocking number. Like we should be saying, okay, well, if this is something that can remedy this, we should all be you know, pulling that rope in that direction. So, so clearly there are many cases um, why we, we should be investing and we should be paying women, I don't know what they're worth, right? And, and, and so um, that's part of it. And, and you know, the other part of it for me, um, so we've, we've talked about kind of human rights side and the moral side and the, the long place side and for us as a culture, like forget about morals, let's just talk about money. Let's just talk about business. Any venture capitalist is looking for an untapped market, something with huge growth potential that is, is, is basically showing you that with a little bit of investment and consistency could really skyrocket. Women's sports has been that for decades. And when they've had little investment, we've seen great returns in the country specifically that have invested consistently are the ones who dominate in women's sports and, and, and produce leaders in women's sports, not just on the field, but, but in their associations. And, and, and that leadership cascades into other parts of their country and their economy. Like, like this is not a debate at this point, it's proven. So, so the business case in terms of whether you are a sports organization, like the one that I work for in sports center, or you're a government um, agency like the Canadian government, or if you're a brand, if you're Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, the, knowing that the buying power in every household, most of the disposable income is decided by, by females. Like th there are so many just obvious cases why we should be investing in women's sports much, much more. Um, so I, I, I think on many levels, we're gonna look back to this time and be dumbfounded that, yeah, the, the female team at UNC plays in front of like 5,000, it's mainly friends and family. And the men's team plays in front of 20,000. And, you know, the coach makes 15X for the men's team what the women's team makes. Like, we're going to look back and we're going to say that that makes no sense because we, we don't, outside of sports, other than, you know, um, the C suites of Fortune 500 companies we don't really look at things that way for the most part. Um, and, and obviously there are some areas in the world um, that where culturally uh, things are much worse than they are here in, in North America. But for us as Canadians specifically, if we're going to have politicians who say that they're feminists and we say as a country that we're progressive and inclusive and diverse, well, we, we actually have to show our work. And sports is a very easy, simple way that we can do that. Yes, and not only is it a, it a very simple and e perhaps, I'm not sure, it should be easy. We've said this before, it should be very easy. And if you take a look at the, the rise and the fall of the Canadian Women's Hockey League, you know, the, the, the very fact that the government saw the women uh, getting a stipend of $1,000 as being paid, they considered that being paid. I mean, they're giving up CERB bigger than that. Um, to the point of Hockey Canada and having an all-male, all-white male board um, and governors, I think the only governor at the time was Cassie Campbell, seeing that at all levels in hockey, including in, at the time the Minister of Sports office, um, to corporations saying 
that would be great. We'll invest in hockey if it's under the NHL, but we're not going to invest in women's hockey if it's run by women. So it just, it's very interesting. And I, I want to get Karen Sebesta, uh, uh take on this as well as a, as a top female executive producer at CBC, one of the only um, female executive producers ever. But the, the, when I think about equal pay, and, and by the way, Donovan, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'm very um, excited and thrilled because Rogers Sportsnet is working with us at the GXS Lab and AFCAD at our university on a gender equity and diversity initiative. And we made that announcement public to everybody in January um, where they have given us some money to do some research and also to award uh, some scholarships to some students go coming into the university. So trying to encourage young up and coming people into our university to take this program so that we can also be educating on equity, diversity, inclusion. And then those students who are graduating had that education, had that background from us and gonna bring that with them into the workforce. So I think it's, it's very promising. I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, it's, that's driven by Bart Yapsley. So, and the organization, but just, which is great because you see that and when you start to see that, that people are, are investing in this. Karen, when you look, when you think about equal pay and we think specifically about the Brazilian national soccer team, there are 159 countries. And I know that CBC has just done some, uh, you, I think you signed a licensing deal with in, in Asia, but 159 countries play in FIFA. Seven, seven of those countries uh, have equal pay agreements and Canada is not one of them. So here we are, uh, we've got soccer as, as a growing sport in our country. And they just received a lot of money to help out with World Cup coming along. And I'm concerned. I look at this and say, you know, and I, and I actually recall the picture. It was Minister Duncan, who is a, is a, is a phenomenal uh, woman and, and minister when she was in uh, at the first term. A number of, I think the, the CEO of Soccer Canada was there. And I took a look at the picture and it was a bunch of little white kids. And I thought, you know what? It's all white people again, standing around receiving money for this. Um, and, and, and at the same time, Canada is even paying equal pay. So where's this money going and why are they getting this money if we're not investing in young girls and, and women's, women's soccer? Um, Karen, what, what do you think in this equal pay this, in this space? And, and, and also what, what you believe in CBC is doing to to bring attention to gender equity in sports. Uh, thanks, Laurel. Hi, everyone. Um, and there are, and I'm not the only executive, <laughs> female executive producer. I know Allison, Allison Redmond at Sportsnet does uh, hometown hockey. So there are, there's a couple of us out there. Um, I typed something, and I'm gonna hit, I'm gonna hit it now and send it. I think, and <laughs> and I guess there's two things I would say. In order for there to be real change. We're just going to have to see more women in leadership positions in sports federations, sports management, more coaching, more CEOs. Um, the the CAWS, the Canadian um, Association of Women in Sports, there's a lot of research behind the fact that young girls get into sports and then they drop out because they don't see it as a career and they don't see the equity in the pay. Um, and I think that, like Donovan said, I like what you said, like, why are we doing things? Is it just a poster 
and photo opportunity or is it something that's really going to have some impact and change going forward so i don't know it's been a long time i go back to tsn back to the 80s and there was an era where we tried you know the women's sports network and nobody wanted it at the time and so what is it now so i think right now where we are in history there's some phenomenal female athletes out there and we've seen that if you watch tennis We've seen that in soccer, football, right? In Europe with them. We've seen it in gymnastics, U.S. gymnastics team. And, and it just goes on and on and on. And Canada, everyone here should know, um, is when high-performance athletes and Team Canada goes to an Olympics, the medals, the gold medals, are predominantly won by women. So certainly, you know, the Canadian Olympic Committee looks at how they fund and the women's sports are funded quite well with this exception of this struggle of hockey in this country but i don't know no canadian team made the bloody playoffs now so why this country still cares about hockey i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i think we should choose some other sports i really do so what i would say to you laurel is i know sportsnet has made commitments to covering women's sports cbc we have a um, commitment to have 51 percent of our content on all platforms be women's sports coverage and that's tough right now when it's only been hockey and nba right so it's up to us as journalists and broadcasters and people in positions of leadership that we go out and find those stories and tell those stories and keep things going and pay equity I, again, I sort of feel like Donovan said, I, I don't know, every day I wake up and I go, how are we here? Like, how is it just not a job description and a set of deliverables and it has a value? How is an athlete who's not trying to perform, not given all the same sub support, you know? So I don't know. FIFA, the board of directors of FIFA, correct me if I'm wrong, are a bunch of 60-year-old white guys, right? <laughs> so again... I hope there's going to be some change there going forward in the next World Cup and things like that. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I, um, I'm just going to keep plugging along and trying to do what I can to hopefully make choices so the Canadian public sees things in a different way. That's all I can do. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. No, that was very helpful. And we've got a note here from Jason Rocco. Jason, fantastic point. It's crazy to me that sport organizations says here, it's crazy to me that sport organizations say they want the best talent, but they eliminate half of the pool before even looking to hire. And yeah, I think you nailed it, Jason. Thank you for that comment. Let's, let's move to tennis I, before we get into basketball. But tennis, I'm loving with uh, Naomi Osaka these days. She is, she's on fire. She's speaking out. Um, she is taking a stand and she's winning grand slams. So uh, $3 million in equal payouts. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago or last week. Uh, tennis has had a lot of spotlight lately with Djokovic. And um, he's been very vocal about COVID. And he's been very vocal about this PTPA, Players Association, and not including has not included women in the conversation. And I'm very happy to see that in terms of equal pay, if you look through the finals, the semifinals, the quarterfinals, males and females uh, received equal. So uh, this is quite promising. Why is it, do you think, Donovan, that tennis is a, and golf are those two sports right now that where the gen, there were pay equity 
has uh, come out in the forefront and there's kind of the leaders in this space. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the advocates that are pushing it forward. I mean, Serena Williams was pushing it forward and, and saying, I'm not gonna play unless I get paid properly. And Billie Jean King has been pushing this forward. Um, are we gonna see more in, 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 uh, in group sports and team sports versus the, the professional sports? Yeah, it's a great question. Before I answer, I, I just wanna follow up on Jason's great comment. Thank you for the interaction. Um, so when people say diversity is a strength, like I, I honestly think it's a competitive advantage to his point. And so if you look, let's use the Raptors as an example and choose the sample size in the last two years, last three years, the last four years, the Raptors have the most wins in the NBA, whatever you, you want to use that sample size. And obviously, uh, you know, they're going to give up their crown, but they're the defending champions. Uh, all that is in the era of Masai Jury. He gets lots of credit and, and it's due deserved. When Masai took over, they had one female working uh, under him on the basketball side. They now have 14, right? So it's not a coincidence that diversity of thought, diversity of experience has made that organization better. And they're now much better. They went from a laughing stock to a first class organization. So to his point, if you eliminate half of the pool and you have a room or a board where everyone looks and sounds the same, then you get into a situation where if everyone's thinking the same, well, then nobody's thinking. And, and so, for, again, forget about morals. For a competitive advantage alone, if you are tapping in the, the underutilized resources, that is the women walking around on this earth that are talented but not given uh, equal opportunity, um, then you're putting yourself ahead of, of most of your competitors. And, and hopefully with the success of an, or, of an organization like the Raptors, others follow and, and, and until they do, the Raptors will kind of be the victor um, and be able to benefit from those spoils. So, so I, I just, I loved what, what Jason said. So I wanted to address that to your point about tennis um, in equal pay. Like you, you, what I love about in tennis specifically is you have like real life change agents on the women's side and every generation you have someone standing on the shoulders of giants. So obviously we know, um, what, what Billie Jean King has done for the sport and for women's sports in general. And, and now, you know, in this era, Serena Williams really, really being someone who's, who's moved the needle even further. And even in this chapter of her career, I, I just love what she's done as a working mom and a high level athlete and changing our perception of what, what female athletes look like, what, what moms look like, certainly. Um, and so that's been beautiful to see. And then, and then, here comes Naomi Osaka, who's looked up to Serena for the better part of, of her young life, and she's able to, to move the ball even further. She benefits from Serena in the fact that now the pay is much better for females and equal, but she says, I'm, I'm not settling there, and she's used her voice in a very different way. Serena is outspoken uh, in, in eloquent and press conferences. Naomi is a little bit more docile, a little more subtle, but in her way, wearing masks, for, for victims uh, to police brutality in the United States, you know, with her grace and humility, really finding her way to lead. And I think that's important, right? Because women, like men, like anyone, are not a monolith. And so there are different ways for them to find success, both individually, but collectively. So I just think that, you know, women's tennis um, is a great, great story and a great lesson that, that hopefully um, we can see that replicate in other sports and other parts uh, of our culture. In, in terms of women's tennis, women's golf, I think part of the reason 
sadly, that they have been able to have some traction and we're having broader conversations about those sports is because us as men, as ego driven as we are, we, we can't turn on the TV and be like, yeah, I could beat Serena or, or I could beat Brooke Henderson. Like we, we know these are amazing athletes at, at a very high level, but there are some idiots among us, I'll say that they're like, oh yeah, like I play rec league down the street. I could play in the WNBA. And the answer is no, you couldn't. Um, but, but I think, I think part of it is these individual sports where their greatness is so obvious that the conversation is a bit more obvious and, and broad in terms of, yeah, we, we need to rectify in terms of the fact that they aren't paid equally. But I also think we're, we're in a golden generation, uh, specifically female tennis players. And, and we, and like, the female side is much more exciting um, and, 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 and much, more, um, much more hotly contested right now and it has been like this for a while than the men's side. Um, and, and the fact that Djokovic was out is what actually made the men's side somewhat compelling. Um, and I think that's a, a big part of it as well. I, I remember um, early in my career, uh, but it's still you know, my fondest memories, uh, covering university sports here in Canada, now U sports. And um, I, was, I was doing sidelines for um, the women's final eight. It was the final game and it was in Regina. They're playing Windsor, the defending champions. And um, it was the middle of winter, it was freezing. And in this, you know, their, their gym, uh, it was packed for this women's final and everyone was wearing green, and the crowd was going crazy. And if anyone who's been to Saskatchewan knows just how proud they are of anything that comes from, from the province, whether it's local minor football to the Rough Riders to the, their, their female university basketball team. And they were in the finals. This mattered to the entire community. They wanted to show the rest of the country that, hey, look at us. We're really good at something. And I was doing my, um, my first hit, and um, – you know, we, we wanted to demonstrate just how loud it was. So I kind of stepped back from the camera to, to closer to the stands with the rabid fans, just to let people know that, yeah, like two steps back and you can't hear anything that I'm saying. And it was so loud. And I was getting ready to do that hit. And it was going to be right after um, the national anthem, when, right before tip. And the national anthem was playing and everyone was belting it out and singing it. And I got emotional. Like I, I almost broke down and started crying, which upsets my wife because I didn't even cry at our wedding. Like she's mad because I like, don't have tear ducts. And the reason I got emotional is because it dawned on me that these female athletes, their investment was just the same. Their parents' investment, driving them to practice was just the same. The coaches staying up late watching tape was just the same. It was the exact same as their male counterparts. But yet this was special for them. This scene was special because they never, ever got this. But the men's basketball players got this all the time. When they were average, they got fans like this. And it, 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 it really belabored the point for me that, yeah, like the, their investment and their level of talent and dedication is no different. But because of no choice of their own, how, how um, they were born or how they identify, their treatment by us as a society is entirely different. Um, so it kind of hit me in that moment. Uh, so that it really uh, didn't answer your question at all. Um, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's kind of like an anecdote that I think about 
um, to, to give me energy in these conversations because that we need to start honoring their level of talent and investment. It made me think about the parallel of, you know, let's say my Chelsea Vernhout or Karen or myself and same, same, same parallel, which is cost me just as much to drive my car to work. It costs me just as much to park or take the subway. And so, and it costs me just as much to buy my lunch. Um, at the corporation, but uh, it's but it's more expensive for women than it is for men because they're getting paid more, as an example. And and I'm there putting in your or these women are putting in 12 hours a day, or so are the men. We're putting in the same amount of time. We did the same amount of education and uh, that pay equity. Plus, we need to work 10 more years than men do to be able to even get close to where that salary is. So I, uh, and one final point, the gender blend sexism. We have talked before about this on the show. It is um, the, the, by Cheryl Cookie and a researcher called Michael Messner. And with that also brings me back to Serena Williams and Djokovic because uh, with Djokovic hitting the tennis ball and hitting the uh, umpire, the, the, the umpire lines person's head or neck or wherever it, it hit the person and, and hurt them, the headlines of the media said Djokovic was frustrated. Whereas when Serena had an incident, it said that she was hysterical. So it's also not just in how what we think about in terms of the leagues and the women players, but also what the media is doing to create this issue and uh, how they are representing women's sports and men's sports differently because um, it, you know, is clearly what her Serena did in that scenario was not even close to being as bad as what Djokovic has done. So what do you think the media can be doing and the journalists and the sideline reporters and the reporters and the, the, the hosts to, to curve this? Yeah, I mean, it's a testament to how we view gender roles, right, as a society. And from the media piece specifically, um, well, let's think, uh, was it a female journalist? Do we think they probably had a female copy editor or managing editor or boss? And if they did, do you think that headline would have been different? I think it probably would. Um, and, and I think that's part and parcel with the problem, right? The checks and balances um, are not there. Women are not represented in newsrooms. They're not part of these conversations, part of these pitch meetings. And even you know, not just that they should be there to actively curb the behavior, you're naturally going to be a little bit more cognizant, a little bit more intentional with your language when you are speaking to women or pitching an idea to women or trying to, to get a byline um, that may not be favorable to women. I remember the, um, you know, after Serena had a quote unquote outburst, there was a a comic, um, you know, written about her in a newspaper, I believe it was in Australia, where, where I mean, she, it, they basically made her look like an, an angry ape, which, which is, you know, both offensive um, because of her race, but also because, you know, they were saying a, a, a female couldn't be fiercely competitive um, at her sport in that, in that moment. And, and so um, it, it, there's a lot of, of, hidden messaging and the way we talk about women and the way we present them, but, but also the way we expect uh, them to act. You know, it, it, you have to be excellent and work really hard and be dedicated, but, but, but don't be too fierce. Don't be too aggressive. 
you have to still also be ladylike. Um, and, and, and Serena and, and Venus early in their careers, one of the conversations was that they were grunting too much. It was too loud. It was unpleasant to watch. It was distracting. Well, who are they distracting? They're the ones playing. You're there actually watching them. <laughs> You're the distraction from them competing at a high level. So if, if, if they need to grunt to, to, to have a four-hand uh, winner down the baseline, we'll then grunt away. Uh, we would never walk around the, the local uh, gym and, and go to the guys who are doing max bench for half an hour and doing no leg workout and say, Hey, can you keep it down? You're a bit distracting with your grunting and your slamming of the weights. Like we wouldn't do that because we just know that there's an archetype of a guy and he's going to do that. But Serena Williams in the U S open or the Australian open, Hey, can you keep it down a little? I'm trying to watch you in peace. And so those are the types of things that we have an expectation, an old one, an outdated one, an antiquated one on what females should be. And, and Serena um, specifically in many ways, has has you know broken that down and, and shown that that's that it's it's really um, unfortunate that we look at women and perceive them to be that way. I mean, I love how intentional she's been with her career, where she can have a tennis match you know, wearing a tutu, but still be dominant. And then you know, in the next tournament, she can wear a black bodysuit and still be dominant as well. Um, she can go away from the sport and, and be a designer of, of clothing, or, or she can take some time off to dance in Beyonce's music video, and then she can come back to the sport and be a loving mom, but also a fierce competitor. So the, 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 the multiple kind of duality of her being kind of somewhat vulnerable and showing different sides of her have allowed us to see different sides of women. Unfortunately, on the flip side, Djokovic has shown us one side of himself and that He's kind of an habitual line stepper. Like he, rules are things that he feels are suggestions and not hard rules. So whether it was, you know, organizing a, a tournament with no real um, COVID regulations that, that got him and others in compromising uh, positions or going out to nightclubs while that tournament was, was going on or, or saying, um, you know, some just ill-informed and really dangerous given his platform things about vaccines and his, his lack of belief in, in, in them to, you know, hitting a, a lineswoman in the neck with a tennis ball for no reason. Um, yeah. His latest, his, which is his latest of trying to get Governor Cuomo to let the French players who tested positive for COVID into New York City and trying to use his privilege. Right. Yes, exactly. And I mean, um, Nick Kyrgios, who um, is mercurial and who does a, a lot of questionable things, rightly has said, listen, if I did one of the last five things that I listed, how bad would I be crucified? And it's true. And partially it's because his skin tone is a little bit different than Djokovic's. And in, in this case that you cite with Serena, where you have like things, and really, I don't think they're like things. I think Djokovic's is much worse. But if, for argument's sake, if we said they're like things, the coverage of the two has been distinctly different. And I think we should question why that is. So let's uh, thank you very much for this. I mean, we could always, when we do the show, we get on a topic like this and we could, and Chelsea and Dan and Axel and all of us, Karen, we always say, oh, we should do, because it's a whole hour. So we need it, we need an hour. Next time we're gonna do one hour on this. It's fantastic. But let's talk about how we're still mourning our beloved Raptors. Oh. 
Um, so I'm going to toss this over to, to the coach for Lynn and to Axel Lilmanis. And, and Alex, we'd love to have your say on this. Over to you on basketball updates. Dan. Thanks, Laurel. Uh, you know, great insight so far, obviously, uh, Donovan, and thank you for sharing uh, all of your thoughts on those topics. I mean, getting moving over to basketball, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, obviously the Raptors lose, the Celtics move on. You've got this situation now with Game 7 uh, lurking between Denver and the Clippers where the Nuggets have sort of resurrected themselves from the dead to, to force this, uh, this Game 7. Donovan, I just want to get your take, you know, in terms of maybe – Part one being uh, your take on, on Kawhi and your thoughts on what he's going to do in game seven to what has really stood out and impressed you the most, whether it be player-wise or thematically, as it relates to the return of the NBA and this playoff season. Yeah, I mean, I guess what has surprised me the most is that it's actually still happening, right? Like, I... I Florida and Orlando specifically, um, when they decided that was going to be the bubble site, it was great. The WWE was there. The cases were low. Um, and then uh, because of the actions or maybe some inactions of governors, we all know <laughs> the opposite happened. And uh, as the economy was reopened, the cases went up. And so the fact that that bubble hasn't really been pierced and they haven't had an outbreak of cases where they are in Florida and they've been able to manage all of this with support staff and broadcasters and now families. Uh, it, it, to me, it defies logic. So kudos to Adam Silver um, it, but, but, and also the players for, for doing it. And, and I, I think also the other thing that really jumps out to me is the level of basketball has been so good, has been so intense for Raptors fans. Um, many can attest has been a little too intense and has been stressful to watch. But um, I, I don't want to speak for everyone else on the call. But I, I, I do know that, like, my physical shape, uh, you know, post-pandemic is not nearly what it was pre-pandemic. The, the first week of March, I was, I was uh, doing much better. And so the, the fact that they were able to, uh, without access to uh, gyms and equipment and trainers for long stretches, stay in shape for a season that they weren't sure was ever going to come, um, but, but then able to, to get into uh, high-level basketball really quickly and play in a season that's longer than anybody would have ever imagined. Like, this is still um, what would be their offseason. I just think the level of basketball, to me, has been uh, outstanding, and it's been fun to watch. And, and uh, specifically for me, um, you know, I, I also love how intentional they've been about using the bubble and that platform to speak to causes that are, are not unique to them, but that are important to me and important to a lot of people. Um, and, and there was a debate on whether or not, you know, it was smart to, to play basketball and take, you know, some attention away uh, from the real conversation that we're having about anti-black racism and, and social equality. Uh, and it's, whether it's LeBron James and advocating um, you know, for, you know, the individual victims and their families or Nick Nurse and advocating for, for voting and registering to vote early. Um, they've really done a great job of using their platform for, for good greater than their own. Uh, so, so, yeah, as a, as a fan of the sport um, and as someone who, who's charged with covering it, it's been exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, 
still not over the Raptors being out. Um, it's gonna it's gonna take me a little bit of time. It was a, it was a tough and bad breakup, but um, with some perspective, they gave us so much fun uh, this year, and they're they're still ascending. And I think they'll be yeah, as good, if not better, next year. You know, that's a great take. Do you have a do you have a prediction for Game Seven? Uh, you know what? So, like in broadcasting, they tell you to just answer the question you want to answer and not answer the, the, the question that you don't I noticed want to you left that part out. I, th- I thought I was going to get by without answering that. I, you know what? I actually um, – I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say that the Denver Nuggets uh, are going to defy logic and come back from 3-1 down. And Canadian Jamal Murray is going to beat um, someone who we wanted to be an adopted Canadian, Kawhi Leonard – um, and Doc Rivers, great coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, has lost 3-1 leads twice before. I think it might happen again. Obviously, we saw the Nuggets come back from 3-1 just to get to the second round in the first round as they were down 3-1 to the Utah Jazz. So, listen, I'm either going to sound uh, like a prophet or the heavily favored Clippers are going to win and no one's going to ever remember that I said this. So I'm going to go with the Denver Nuggets um, you know, beating the Clippers and beating Kawhi. Well, let's hope people can make a profit on your prophecy. On right. that one. Yeah. And, you know, nice. well I, done. I've spoken like a true journalist, of course, too, because you, you pull in a couple of well-researched statistics about Doc there. So uh, well played. Um, you know, I'm going to segue, if I may, into we do a little segment called Rapid Fire where okay. uh, we talk and I give you 10 questions and it's the first thing that comes to your mind, one word answers, Alex, I don't want you to feel left out at all because we kind of saved the best for last. I got you lined up, Alex. I've got you lined up, Donovan, each with your own rapid fire. It's like double barrel action going on on Monday night, much like the Monday night football schedule is going today. So double barrel action across the board. Why don't we start, Donovan, with you just because we got you talking a little bit about basketball. Um, I know it's a question you get a lot. So again, one word answers, whatever comes to your mind. Here we go. Number one, I got to know. How's the body feeling? <laughs> Excellent. Attaboy. Um, hey, you wrote an open letter to your son, Desmond. Now, what do you hope his and maybe even everyone's takeaway from that letter will be? Um, hope. That's the word I'd use. I, I hope they take some hope from it because I'm hopeful. Hey, what's the best part of being a dad? Patience. It teaches you patience. I was going to say probably mirrors the next question. What's the hardest part of being a dad? Dry cleaning. My dry cleaning bill has gone up. I was going to say, and I know you take your threads pretty seriously. Hey, we were talking a little bit about Raptors. If you took Masai Ujiri's job um, as GM of the Raptors tomorrow, what would be your first move of the offseason? Can I actually go back? Because actually the worst part is nobody cares about me anymore. Everyone cares <laughs> about him and my wife. I know that wasn't one answer or one word, but... Um, but Masai, first business of the offseason, um, Fred Van Vliet. It's two words, but his name. Resigning Fred. Freddie. Hey, favorite athlete interview you've ever con- conducted of all time? Stephen Curry. Toughest athlete interview you've ever had? Ooh. Chris Bosch. Huh, interesting. <laughs> um, if you could change one thing in professional sports, what would it be? Eagle pay. On Twitter, your bio says that you can do, you can do it all. So it's a question I like to ask everybody, but um, 
out of everything you can do, what's the one skill that you feel like you use every single day? Um, empathy. I think as, as journalists, we should be empathetic, both to our audience, but also to our subjects. I'm not good at the one word thing. No, you're beautiful. You're, you're, you're doing great. Hey, so this one, I'll give you a little longer leash then. What's a phrase, even a word, but something, a bit of advice that you'd offer media students getting into the business? Attack the hurdles. Uh, so this business is difficult. It's brutal. It's tough. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Uh, you're, there are going to be pe periods where you struggle uh, or it's frustrating. Uh, attack them. Those are the periods that are going are to make you better, that are going to differentiate you, make you great. And those are the periods where some of your peers are either going to just give up or they're going to put in half effort. So whenever you come up against a hurdle, understand that like that's your ability to take it to the next step. So attack those hurdles because they're inevitable in our business. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, that is round one of Rapid Fire with DJ Donovan Bennett. Well played, sir. Thank, Thank you. you. We're going to move our attention. Alex Gallagher, how are you? I'm all right. Thank you. Well, listen, good to hear your voice. Great to have you on the show. Hey, in a word, how's life in a pandemic been for you? Crazy. <laughs> hey, little, little known fact, you're from Bracebridge, Ontario, up in Muskoka. What was your favorite ride growing up at Santa's Village? Can none of them be an option? <laughs> Um, my favorite was a boat. It had this cool boat that looked like a sleigh. I actually had to work on it when I was a, an employee there when I was in high school. And he would spin around and do all these cool things while giving you a show. So definitely my favorite one. Hey, listen, there's a great backstory here. You've had a chance to, in many ways, kind of live your dream, get, get a dream job, both while you being a student in the RTA Sport Media Program and now emerging um, as a graduate. Uh, what's been the best part of being a race reporter for you? Traveling. Um, I've been had the pleasure of going to places like Boston, uh, Indianapolis. Um, actually, in the middle of practicum, uh, I was shipped to California. Uh, so that was a really cool experience for me. Um, but being able to see all these exotic locations that I don't think I'd ever would be able to in my lifetime is absolutely incredible. You know, it's funny because, of course, you look at any reporter, someone in front of the camera, you know, it's a glam type of job. But what's the least glamorous part that you can share with us about what you do? Oh, man. Honestly, sometimes it can be the traveling. Um, you know, I've taken some red eye specials. I, I've missed my flight. I arrived in places at like two in the morning and flown out at six the next day. Like, those parts are the, the, are the unflattering things you see, you don't see, right? You think, oh, they probably fly a, a charter jet somewhere nice. Nah, I was on American Airlines business class to Sacramento. It wasn't that exciting. Hey, listen, at least you're on business class. Well played, I've been in the cargo section before uh, flying no, no. for work. Hey, you know, you, you kind of talk about this under this, you know, guise of this being a dream job for you. Um, you know, what advice do you offer for those trying to land their dream job and not, not sell? Yeah, you know, my advice to the people trying to get in is like, no dream is, is too stupid. Like when I came into this program, you guys all know that I was just a kid from Muskoka who just wanted to be a NASCAR journalist. And that's all I ever talked about was this NASCAR, NASCAR, NASCAR. Like every assignment was NASCAR. Everything was NASCAR. It was the only thing I knew how to talk about. 
And I took that dream that people thought was the stupidest thing in the world. Like I had people growing up telling me, Oh, uh, by the way, I want pickles on my Big Mac. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to find a way and I'm going to do it. Um, and my thing is, even if your dream is to be, you know, the president of the United States, it's not stupid. Go for it. Well, final question for you. You know, there's of course a famous line from Talladega Nights that says, Hey, if you ain't first, you're last. So in your experience, I want you to finish the line. If you ain't first, uh, someone's getting fired. <laughs> All right. Hey, you listen. see a race car if you're not winning, someone's out the door. Hey, it's a bottom line business sometimes, isn't it? Alex, thanks for all your openness and, and your time here tonight and those great answers. Glad to know that not only you enjoyed the boat sleigh ride at Santa's Village, but you also worked there. Alex, great stuff today for both Donovan and Alex. That is your rapid fire for a Monday night. Thank you both. Great. Thank you, Dan. So uh, just quickly, uh, we've got, we've got two minutes left here. So I want to get Axel, Lil Manis, and Chelsea in with their questions. I know that they have some questions for you, DJ uh, and, and Axel. I'm going to open up the line to you in terms of some questions you have for, for DJ. Hey, DJ, it's Axel. Just a quick question. Uh, have you been following any of the NBA 2K stuff? You know, the Toronto Raptors uprisings, uh, undefeated season. Uh, I, I know like a lot of this stuff is going under the radar, but um, behind the scenes, there's some um, uh, something to cheer about if you're if you're a Raptors fan. Are, have you been? Are you a gamer? Do you enjoy watching esports? Is that is there a buzz around the office around this sort of stuff? Yeah, so I'm not a gamer, uh, and um, I I'm, I've been paying attention uh, to to how they've been performing just out of civic pride because I want all the Toronto teams no matter what uh, platform to do well. Uh, in our office, Stevie Leong is kind of the, the guy who covers each sports for us uh, in a real way. But I mean, I do think it's your point. It's, it's been under the radar. When you look at the, the level of investment, um, globally, we've known that for a long time, but even here in Canada, you know, the, the potential of having an, an esports dedicated arena here in our city, um, you know, it, it's obvious where it's going and it, it's, not going to be very long uh, before, uh, you know, it's going to be considered a mainstream sport where you'll be watching Sportsnet Central if, if that's uh, what, what it's called uh, at that time. And there will be highlights of, of the most recent uh, esports competitions the same way there are highlights of, of the big four sports. So I, I love the fact um, that it's becoming part of the conversation. And I love the fact specifically that in Canada, um, you know, pre-pandemic, you had bars specifically, um, you know, showing events. And, and now, you know, you've, you've got a team that, that has been pretty consistent in, in the start of the, the 2K League. So, uh, yeah, it's an uh, ascending business for sure. And, and just, just follow the money. That investment's not going anywhere. Thanks. And, the, and then I'll, I'll sign off with my vote of support for Pascal. He's getting dragged through the mud and um, uh, in some nasty ways, too. We were talking about you know, um, racism uh, earlier and uh, the NBA stance on that. But it seems like uh, when you get paid a lot of money, it, it kind of um, allows people to take uh, shots at you. So um, my heart goes out to Pascal. He, no, nobody works harder than that guy and he'll come back next year uh, better, but um, it does, definitely does not deserve uh, what, what's been said and, and what continues to be said about him in the, um, in the, in the darkness of the internet world. Yeah, so sad and unfortunate and disappointing to see 
And I mean, you know, uh, often the the minority is the most vocal part of a community. And, and you know, we, we saw some ugliness on social media towards him, sadly, but, but that came from people who really aren't true, true Raptors fans and, and true basketball fans. But it is um, important to remember that that is part of our community, both here in Canada and in, in North America. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I was actually thinking, you know, you know, late um, that night, he, Pascal is someone who is so, so close uh, with his family and his brother specifically. Um, and, you know, in the bubble, in isolation, away from family, um, you know, the way, one of the ways you can connect with them um, is through your phone. Um, and, and, you know, you've got so much time. And I almost think the bubble is more difficult for people who are struggling. So much time to think and to get on your phone and to see what people are saying about you when you are struggling. And, and if he wants to interact with, you know, his, his brother and family often will be through that phone. And for him to see those negative messages um, is tough. And, and just people who are criticizing him, you know, not, not something as nefarious as, as um, you know, hateful things and, and racist things, but just people who are overacting about his game. Uh, we have to have some perspective. This kid who's 26 years old. He's been playing basketball for 10 years. I, I have articles of clothing in, in, upstairs that are older than, than, you know, the amount of time he's been playing basketball. He's still so young and he's being penalized uh, by the fact that he was so good so quick. Now we always expect greatness from him. All the greats have gone through struggles like this. And you're right. He is the hardest w worker. Um, you know, one of the hardest workers on that team, he will bounce back. And the, let's not forget that Kyle Lowry has gone through struggles like this. LeBron James has, and, and they became great. And Pascal will do the same. So uh, Canadians, Raptors fans, make sure you, you, you hit him with lots of positivity and love um, and be a better representation of, of, of who we truly are. Well, speaking of speaking of hardworking and um, perspective, uh, Chelsea uh, has has both those in spades. So um, over to you, Chelsea. Thanks, Axel. So Alex, thank you for joining Sport Talks and welcome back as a Ryerson graduate. I'm very interested in your experience as someone in your career field and a social media specialist and be reporter for NASCAR. As someone who is also passionate about sports social media as I am, I would love for you to talk about social media in NASCAR. NASCAR. On this show, we've primarily talked about more traditional sport social media platforms like NHL, NBA, NFL, and NASCAR is a completely new space uh, for me that I haven't explored. So I would love for you to tell us what you do as a specialist in this sport and what makes NASCAR social media and journalism so different from everything else. So the biggest thing about NASCAR is unlike a lot of other sports, our drivers are walking advertisements for whatever company happens to be footing the bill. Um, you know, a lot of drivers, we have to integrate that into our social medias. Um, you know, a lot of drivers like to shell whatever they're sponsored by. So an usual interview with a driver can be, so how was your race? And it'll be, oh, race was pretty good. Let me thank my 41 different contingency sponsors that came out of my car. Um, but with NASCAR, it's amazing that we have this cool platform where we have all these drivers and all these different cars racing around the track that we can afford to be a bit more creative and showcase the personalities of these drivers. Because in my series, the Pinty series, these guys aren't millionaires. They're guys who come out to these racetracks and we want a chance, to, we use these opportunities to showcase what these guys do, what these guys do in their day jobs, what these guys do off the track to hopefully maybe get these guys more opportunities for them to make uh, more money to continue racing. Because the problem is if you wreck a car, that's it. 
you're you might not be able to come back if you can't afford to fix it. And we always try to use the promotional aspect of our social media. And that's what makes us a bit different. Um, but that's even more different than what we are in the States because in America, they are obviously a lot more like your NFL, your NBA, they're very similar, but up here in Canada, we have to unite, unite and hopefully give everyone some credit. That's awesome. And I think it, it's also reminds me of CrossFit athletes. I'm, I'm very big into, into that sport, not personally or physically, but just watching it and observing it and how they're. I always love the way that their social media is produced because like you said, they rely heavily on sponsorship. They're not part of this big league that just gets the money for them. So they have to get creative with their social media as well. So it's really interesting that they can see the, the parallels between the two sports. Thank you guys so much, Donovan and Alex, for coming on to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. It's been an incredible show. It went by completely fast because we had such thoughtful conversation. And we also really appreciate you guys tackling the really critical issues. And, and not only on the show, but in your own broadcast and in your own career. So thank you so much for coming on. And we would love to see you guys again. And everyone, have a great night. Thank you, Donovan. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Cheers. Take care.